Groundbreaking science is a creative process. I would describe this podcast as a scientific endeavor, but it doesn't exactly look like science much of the time. Of course, scientific evidence is critical to what I present here. I talk about experiments and theoretical frameworks, and I analyze lines of evidence relative to one another. I develop analogies and thought experiments to help me think things through. Drawing on philosophy, science, and critical thinking, I entertain new hypotheses and present arguments. The formation of hypotheses, if they are interesting hypotheses, is a creative process. If I have any talent as a scientist, it's probably in this domain. I'm not sure there's a big market for this talent, in particular at academic institutions. I think this must be at least in part an artifact of the grant-rewarding system. In the domain of experimental science, what gets funding is clearly feasible incremental study. And that's too bad because the number of active neuroscientists working today is orders of magnitude greater than it was a few decades ago. Could the great minds of the past, guys like Freud and Young and William James, be employed in a modern university scientific department? A lot of what these men did was speculative, but it remains important and influential after all this time, even though many hypotheses haven't stood the test of time. We learn as much from crossing off incorrect paths as we do from walking down correct ones. Visionary thinkers are like trackers in the woods, unstuck to the trail and able to create shortcuts. What they do is less safe, but far more adventurous. Can't a scientific community of this magnitude afford to cultivate a few adventurers? Today I'll be looking at a paper called Where's My Consciousness Ometer? How to Test for the Presence and Complexity of Consciousness by Tam Hunt, Marissa Erickson, and Jonathan Schooler. Specifically, reading this paper caused me to do some thinking on the topic of creativity. They write, quote, We propose a general framework for making reasonable inferences regarding the presence and type of consciousness that rests on various measurable correlates of consciousness, MCCs. MCCs are any means for measuring different aspects of consciousness. In its current formulation, MCCs include as subcategories the well-known neural correlates of consciousness, NCCs, and the related but broader notion of behavioral correlates of consciousness, BCCs. It also includes the newly coined creative correlates of consciousness, CCC, category that is explained below. We discuss other potential subcategories below. We also suggest that the various metaphysical positions with respect to the nature of consciousness may be contrary to the commonly held view that such positions are outside the domain of science empirically informed. With new tools and technologies at our disposal, these questions may become more than just philosophical. The proposed framework is fundamentally Bayesian in its approach because it depends on each individual's prior judgments about the likelihood of some degree of phenomenal consciousness being present, or not, in the subject at issue. If individuals have significantly different priors, as they surely will, substantively different conclusions may be drawn from the same evidence. However, our approach may over time help to bridge the distance between different perspectives, even if this approach falls short of a definitive test or psychometer. The proposed framework is meant to provide a standardized and general set of tools for examining the universe of potential kinds of conscious entities and, through such examination, help to develop a community-based consensus about the presence and type of consciousness in various entities." Unquote. The authors illustrate that the measurable correlates of consciousness come in three forms. The classic neural correlates of consciousness, NCC, as well as behavioral correlates, BCC, and creative correlates, CCC. I think this taxonomy might be of some utility. 
In this episode, I'm inclined to focus on something here which is outside of my usual way of thinking, this idea of the creative correlates of consciousness. But before I do, I should point out an area of evident bias in the author's account of consciousness. In the brief passage that follows, the authors propose a potential addition of the evolutionary correlates of consciousness. That idea itself, I think, is a good one. But notice the strong claim the authors make here. Quote, A likely fourth category would be evolutionary correlates of consciousness meant to assess the degree of kinship between the organism and other organisms. For example, an invertebrate closely related to cephalopods, which are probably the most intelligent of invertebrates, and enjoy the highest capacity for consciousness among the invertebrates, might also be considered more likely to enjoy a richer type of consciousness. This inference is based, at least in part, on the evolutionary relatedness to creatures that are generally considered to experience more complex types of consciousness." Unquote. The authors claim that octopus, undeniably intelligent creatures, quote, enjoy the highest capacity for consciousness among the invertebrates. Unquote. If I had eight arms, I'd be inclined to raise a few of them at this point in the conversation. I have some questions. Mind you, I'm not making the claim that octopus are not conscious, but I must object to the assumption that they are. Indeed, an evolutionary approach to consciousness would militate against this assumption. As an animal physiologist, it's easy to see how a cat or a dolphin or a monkey has a remarkably similar brain structure to that of the human. And, of course, our relatedness to these advanced mammalian species is orders of magnitude greater than it is to the cephalopods. Like the complex eye, which has arisen independently in the cephalopod lineage, a convergent evolutionary process might enable consciousness in the octopus, as it does in us. Hell, I'm inclined to, to a bias in the same direction as the authors, but I recognize it as a bias which must be resisted. It is in this spirit that I'm curious what they have to say about creativity, as a correlate of consciousness. Aesthetics are related to personality in that they involve implicit structures of incentive. For example, in the area of music appreciation, the sense of awe or sorrow or sweetness or whatever which accompanies a sequence of sounds in rhythm and melody occurs automatically as an emotional response. Thus, there is value built into the brain in its functioning. Like personality, the preferences will be expected to differ among individuals. But as humans, we are much more similarly endowed with values than we are dissimilar. We enjoy or take special interest not directly in the music, but in the emotional response, the state of mind produced. And we use the music as a tool to achieve such preferable or meaningful states of mind. Like taking a drug, it is the chemical effect within the brain that delivers the payoff. We then come to associate the drug or the paraphernalia of procuring such peculiar meaningful states with the states themselves. Thus, we appreciate a piece of music not directly, but as the paraphernalia of an emotional experience. The guitars and the drums are as burning embers and inhaled smoke. The key connection I am drawing between personality traits and aesthetics is that the incentives compel the preferences. We cannot decide to enjoy a spike of dopamine, or an ambient tone of serotonin, or a dose of oxytocin. These neuronal mechanisms are not under voluntary control. Nevertheless, there are levers available to us which will reliably trigger the release of these neurochemicals. We can return to the well of positive feelings by watching a certain movie or listening to a song. Unfortunately, the particular magical potion contains a mixture of feelings including a kind of novelty which upon repeated exposure will wear away. How interesting that a song or a painting will exhibit a reduction in efficacy upon repeated exposure just like a drug will and probably by more or less the same mechanism tolerance goes up. 
so if we hope to get back to the original pristine experience, all we can try is to increase the precipitating dose. To get the surge of power and awe we get in heavy metal, we must seek out heavier and heavier sounds. And alas, we can never again quite capture the terror and aggression with which this music gripped us in our untrained youth. We toy in our basements with the guitar and the amplifier, with the same vain foolishness of Uncle Rico playing star quarterback on the lawn. Nostalgia is an interesting counterpoint. It occurs only in the absence of novelty. I hear a song that used to have a certain effect on my mind, and I get some shadowy reflection of it, characterized by a halo of associations which add to the magic, a bitter sweetness. Aesthetics are a subjective phenomenon. Absent a conscious onlooker, it is impossible that the sun setting over some desolate planet could be beautiful. Beauty, unbeheld by any eye, does not exist. Beauty exists only in the mind. It was never present before its emergence in some ancestral consciousness. Nor in a manner was truth or justice. These things are worth meditating on for a thousand years straight. Are we made in the image of God, or is it he that is made in ours? I have not lowered God by making this observation, but raised us as conscious beings. We are nothing less than the creators of truth and beauty, here and now, and we see that they are good. The sunset itself is not an invention of the viewer. The sunset is a real event being observed. A solar system or the downward wending of rivers and waterfalls from melting peaks of snow. These are not the inventions of mind. Rather, it is their majesty which exists only in the mind. Having established this, let us revisit Tam Hunt and colleagues. On the Creative Correlates of Consciousness, CCCs, they write, quote, Creative output is another source of data for assessing the presence of consciousness. If for whatever reason we cannot examine neural or behavioral correlates of consciousness, we may be able to examine CCCs for clues. In addition, in any circumstance in which the presence of consciousness is in doubt, it will be beneficial to use as many tests of consciousness as are available, including separate tests focused on NCCs, BCCs, and CCCs. For example, when we examine ancient architectural structures such as Stonehenge, or other megalithic structures or cave paintings in Europe that have been determined to be as much as 65,000 years old, are we reasonable in judging the creators of these items to be conscious in ways similar to our own? We cannot see the creative process or know with any certainty what creatures created these works of art. In other words, we have no way of examining BCCs or NCCs because the creators are not present and not accessible. Despite this lack of information, however, most of us would answer in the affirmative. The creators of these works were very likely conscious in ways quite similar to how we are conscious. We know from experience that it would take high intelligence and consciousness to produce such works today, so most of us would reasonably infer that our ancient ancestors had levels of consciousness similar to those of humans today. What if we eventually find non-human artifacts on Mars or other bodies in our solar system? Can we reasonably infer that whatever entities created such artifacts were conscious? It will depend on the artifacts in question. But if we were to find items or dwellings similar to what we find on Earth, but that were clearly not human in origin, most of us would reasonably infer that the creators of these artifacts were also conscious in certain ways similar to human consciousness." Unquote. A bit further on they write, quote, We may ask similar questions about the presence of consciousness in creatures that probably do not have a sense of self-consciousness, such as the creators of termite mounds, or ant colonies, or bowers created by bower birds, or fish. Are these structures, if we consider them separately from their creators, helpful data for inferring the presence of consciousness in their creators? 
And what if these kinds of structures change over time on the basis of different generations, or change on the basis of location, suggesting that it is not simple instinct leading to construction of these complex structures? Such data can be informative, even if it will be interpreted differently by each observer on the basis of their particular Bayesian priors." Unquote. I was speaking previously of the sunset and the flowing river, objective features of the world, only painted in beauty by the mind which beholds them. Should we think differently of a honeycomb or a termite mound? S sexual selection provides an interesting twist. The would-be creator of the feather display, or the elaborate nest or bird song, need not do so consciously. But what about the selector, who exhibits apparent appreciation of the display or the song? Perhaps it is the observer who responds wherein we sh should infer the consciousness. If a construction serves a clear purpose for an animal, then we need not assume that a conscious process has been working in creating it. I'm thinking here of a beaver dam, or the nest a fish will scoop out of the floor of a lake, or a burrow dug out by a colony of meerkats. Just because these creations have come about by means of gnawing or digging does not mean it much more, make it that much more mysterious than if it had come about by growth like a striped pattern of fur. We might mistake the rhythmicity of breathing as evidence for consciousness. Natural selection might plausibly instantiate creative behaviors such as these outside of consciousness. Isn't the alternative just a version of the intelligent design argument for diverse species and specialized organs? Mind you, I'm not dismissing the value of the author's point. They're right to widen the search for correlates of consciousness. I'm essentially just thinking out loud here. It is not safe to assume that a complex construction has a conscious creator. Nor can the opposite be safely assumed. There are many things which I have occasion to do quite consciously, but which a non-conscious thing could also accomplish. The challenge is to distinguish those things I can do when I am conscious that could not otherwise be done. Consider something like a sleepwalking state. One can walk, maneuver in familiar places, take a seat, open a door, and even speak sensible phrases, apparently unburdened by sentience. I believe one might even be able to respond to simple prompts or questions in such sleepwalking states, but could one make a rhyme, or invent a joke, or do simple arithmetic? I don't know. It seems reasonable to assume that there is some line to be drawn between what can and cannot be achieved without presence of mind. I believe it is in the spirit that the authors bring up creativity as pointing to consciousness. The true production of novelty, does that require consciousness? Surely this is too high a barrier. I'll give you an example. I'm always a bit frustrated to watch a band of chimpanzees making obvious errors due to their lack of creative thinking. Why doesn't this one just use the rock he's been cracking nuts with to crack open that other one's head? Does he not see the clear logic? They get into vicious battles in which they grab and bite, but it never occurs to them to use a stick or a rock as a weapon. If they ever saw another troop utilizing clubs, they would probably start using them too. But as long as the idea remains a novelty, it is utterly unknowable to them. Yet I would never be so bold as to suggest that chimpanzees lack consciousness. Bowerbirds build structures out of sticks and colorful objects in order to attract females. At least that is what they are doing in effect. But they aren't thinking about what they might try in order to attract females, as you or I could do. The strategy is always the same. Build a bower and decorate it. For chimps on a raiding party, sticks and branches are used to beat against tree trunks and make a lot of noise, but they are never employed for melee. It seems to me that the only way to get from creative production to the inference of consciousness is to fully grasp the purpose of the construction and to assess its novelty. There is something here which suggests a connection between what is and what should be in the Humean sense. 
To the bowerbird, a bower is the thing which attracts females. To the chimpanzee, a big stick is a noisemaker. It's as if to the mind of the chimp there is no distinction between the stick and the making of loud noises. If there were, then the chimp might use something else to make noises, and it might think to use the stick for other purposes. The noise and the stick would have separable existence. So an indication of consciousness might be the definition of a problem and a solution in abstraction, so as to enable the creation of a novel solution. Novel solutions require an understanding of the problem in its own right. Human beings faced with a problem like storing food will independently come up with lots of interesting methods. Cook it, smoke it, dehydrate it, salt it, keep it cold, and so on. All of this speaks to the necessity of consciousness for abstraction, a major innovation of cognitive evolution. But the cart is firmly ahead of the horse in applying this rationale because the reverse does not follow. It does not follow that consciousness necessitates abstraction. In one sense, the Turing test is far too stringent, and in another, the test is far too permissive. By solving intelligence problems, facial recognition, mathematics, chess, vocal mimicry, and syntax, a sophisticated though perfectly ordinary AI will pass the Turing test long before such a system could be designed to exhibit consciousness. Thus, such a test is subject to false positives. On the other hand, a simple animal might have a rich subjective life and yet have nothing to show for itself in terms of intelligence, so false negatives. In an era of personal computers, drones, GPS, and learning algorithms, I fear our predecessors in the 20th century were overly willing to conflate intelligence with consciousness, a correlation which, in the case of human beings, might be entirely aside from causation. I see no necessity that more complex computing power entails progress toward consciousness. On this I have reason to assume that Tam Hunt and I could agree. I expect that we would agree on much more, too. In this episode I have not done a thorough examination of the article I quoted from, not even close. But it got me thinking about the meaning of creativity, and that was worth my time. In all likelihood I will explore this paper further on the podcast as I think there is more to be gained yet from what it contains. According to the TICL framework, complexity will earn you richer and richer meanings in conscious content. But the fact of consciousness is much more fundamental. A multitude of varied contents, a sense of self and of the world, the appreciation of beauty and truth, a capacity to create novelty, these are complex forms of conscious experience. Consciousness is, of course, necessary for all of these things. But what would consciousness be without them? Well, it would remain everything that it is. But what would it be like? Something else completely.